This episode of the Security Ledger podcast is sponsored by Reversing Labs. Reversing Labs protects the software development process end-to-end, from open source components to CI-CD workflows to the release pipeline. With Reversing Labs, development and AppSec teams can set risk-based policies across CI-CD controls to detect signs of tampering, exposed secrets, certificate misconfigurations, or vulnerabilities before software is released. To learn more, Visit them at reversinglabs.com. And welcome to the Security Ledger podcast. I'm Paul Roberts, Editor-in-Chief at the Security Ledger. In this episode of the podcast number 244. Think about traditional Soho like router malware. Um, it's usually used in like botnets and things yeah. that attack other people. Mm-hmm. And it kind of has that external propagation. This one seemed to have an internal propagation. So once it was actually on the host device, it would do things like scan the internal range of like 192 right. and 168, you know, all those. Right. And then that was kind of the weird thing. It's like, why is this looking in? Cyber attacks on small office and home office, or SOHO, routers aren't new. Back in 2017, the malware known as Mirai made headlines across the world by infecting hundreds of thousands of weakly protected SOHO routers, then stringing them into a potent botnet that could be leased out to launch denial-of-service attacks or distribute spam. But for all its bluster, Mirai and the IoT botnets that followed it were pretty simple creatures. They infected Soho routers, mostly to own the router itself. The goal was to build a platform for future external attacks, not probe the home and small business networks the routers fronted. That's not the case with ZuoRat, a mysterious Mirai variant uncovered by researchers at Lumen's Black Lotus Laboratories. According to Lumen researcher Danny Adamitis, ZuoRat looked like earlier botnets, but behaved very differently, with an intense interest in the devices connected to home networks and the ability to launch extremely targeted attacks on home devices that could steal data, redirect web searches, and potentially install malware. Another interesting tidbit, ZuoRat's targets, which include everyone from Uyghur Muslims and Hong Kong residents in China to homes and small businesses here in the U.S. ZuoRat was the subject of a presentation Danny gave at the recent LabsCon conference in Phoenix. I spoke with him after his talk, and in this interview, he describes how he stumbled upon ZuoRat and the many curious features of the malware that his research uncovered. We also talk about the larger problem of vulnerable Soho routers whose care, maintenance, and security is often overlooked at great risk to both homes and businesses. To start off, I asked Danny how he came to research ZuoRat. So my name is Danny Adamitis. I work for Lumen Technologies, and inside of Lumen Technologies, we have a threat intelligence arm called Black Lotus Labs, and I'm a principal information security engineer there. So we're talking at LabsCon, and you did a really interesting, really interesting, albeit short presentation on a campaign that you detected uh, at Lumen um, targeting Soho routers. Um, Talk just a little bit about, first of all, how you became aware of this campaign. So this was always a a fun question. 
Um, this was actually just originally found just in Virusol. So it was actually the week of Christmas. Um, my whole family was kind of asleep and I had insomnia. So like everyone, I started writing your rules. <laughs> that's what I do too, man. I mean, if, sometimes that's what you need to fall asleep. Um, so we were just kind of looking at weird examples compiled for interesting architectures. And I came across something that originally was kind of flagged as Mirai. Um, but it had like a slightly lower detection rate than your mm -hmm. standard Mirai stuff. IoT um, botnet, yep. Yeah, yeah, everyone remembers that. Yep. So I was just kind of like, okay, well, what makes this sample so different? And then I obviously started kind of, you know, doing some analysis, doing some strings, doing some of that kind of stuff. And I was like, well, there, this doesn't look like your standard uh, Mirai. So then we kind of went into our own internal telemetry. Um, and we actually saw that there was some impact to uh, U.S. customers. Um, so that's when we were saying, okay, well, this is something that clearly isn't Mirai. This is active in the wild. This is actually hitting some of um, you know, our customers and even people in the U.S. Uh, what exactly is this thing and like, how did this get here? And then that just kind of initiated that months-long sequence of trying to figure out everything we could about this. So you had this Yara rule. You ran it. You've had some, some positive detections, showed it was active. And, and what were the devices being targeted here? So these were predominantly Soho routers. Mm -hmm. um, so Which these, is, Mirai also mostly Soho routers. Correct. Right. Um, so these are, the, the best way to describe this is everyone has an internet service provider and everyone gets that lovely black box in the mail when you first sign up. It's those devices that you get on day one and you never think about again for the next 10 years. Mm -hmm. um, we saw that this was impacting a number of different ones. Uh, we saw it going after, I believe it was uh, Netgear. We saw some stuff going after Draytech. Um, it's just it's just a plethora of things, and I'm being candid. I think there's a lot more there than we actually have, but of yeah. course, we're just trying to list what we can independently observe and you know verify. Right. So tell us what this malware that you discovered does. Like, what is the attack sequence? So this is a really interesting malware sample, and the thing that got me is when you think about traditional Soho like router malware. Um, it's usually used in like botnets and things yeah. that attack other people, mm -hmm. and it kind of has that external propagation. This one seemed to have an internal propagation. So once it was actually on the host device, it would do things like scan the internal range of like 192 right. and 168, you know, all those. Right. And then that was kind of the weird thing. It's like, why is this looking in? Um, and then we found three really prominent features that were built into this first stage binary. There was a packet capture feature, there was a DNS hijacking feature, and an HTTP hijacking feature, uh, which is just something that we haven't really seen a whole lot. And yes. I think the only other one who actually had like an HTTP and PCAP I'm aware of was something like a VPN filter right. from a couple years back. Right. And as we remember, that kind of blew up. Yeah, yes. So really interesting, and kind of what you're saying is, you know, Mirai was really, um, the, you know, the router was kind of secondary. It was really about spam distribution or malware distribution or Bitcoin mining or whatever, whatever the botnet was being employed for. There wasn't really that much interest in what was behind that router on the on the home networks or the Soho networks. And, and in this case, you're saying that's actually the exact opposite. Completely opposite. The adversary was very interested in what was going on behind the router. Exactly. Right. And then the other thing, if I can, that I believe made this so interesting and you know, so, I want to say nefarious, is that this was actually occurring. Um, so based on our analysis, we can confirm it was active since October of 2020. Um, and if we go back to October 2020, this is the height of that COVID-19 pandemic. Yes. Everyone's working from home. Yep. We're shifting to that, you know, brand new digital remote environment. Yes. And all those times, you know, prior to that, everyone's building up that strong perimeter defense of things. Now everyone's at home. And if you can hit that Soho router, right. all of that lovely network and perimeter defense you built, 
doesn't really matter anymore. Right. And in fact, we saw warnings from CISA and others uh, about attacks targeting uh, home VPNs, uh, Soho routers, you know, efforts basically to hop on that uh, shift to remote work uh, as a way to um, further targeted attacks, basically. Exactly. Against companies, defense industrial base, you name it. Everything. Okay. You talk about some of the sort of granularity of the policies and the and the capabilities of this malware in terms of hiding itself um, and also facilitating whatever it was, data exfiltration or, um, you know, um, attacks. Um, what are some of the things that you observe? So... There was a number of things that were very unique to this, where this is kind of what I was calling this advanced like host-based enumeration. Um, so a lot of times when you know you analyze malware, the first thing you'll see is something like, who am I? Where mm-hmm. am I? What's mm-hmm. my host name? And again, it had some of those standard functions of what is my internal IP, like what's my internal IP address? What's my external IP address? What's my operating system? Um, but they actually kind of take it a step further and they were actually pulling things like your SSID. So if you guys have a, a Wi-Fi network at your house, it might say, you know, your house network. Or it would take things like your BSSID, which is like a MAC address that's unique to your actual router. Um, it was even pulling things like your ARP, um, ARP cache table. So if you kind of think of a router, you know, if you're at your house, I maybe have, you know, my laptop, I have an iPhone, I might have, you know, something else, like my PlayStation. Oh, each one of those three things is going to be connected to that router. It's going to have the internal IP address and your MAC address. Um, and they were actually pulling that information, which would allow them to really gain a good understanding of what is behind that network. inventory of what is connected to that network. Yep. Right. So that allowed them to then kind of use that information to write these really custom rules for things like DNS hijacking or for HTTP hijacking, where maybe you know we're all working from home, but I'm sure most people have their work email address on their cell phone and their laptop. And again, on that corporate laptop, you probably have some sort of EDR product. You have some mm-hmm. system monitoring. Do you have all that stuff on your Android phone? Is that on your iPhone? Mm-hmm. Is it easier to target something like that and still get access to some of that corporate information? And again, with kind of some of the um, like the DNS hijacking rules, you can specify, I only want to hit this internal IP address. I only want to hit this certain URL, this particular host name, so they can kind of write those tailored rules to kind of still get what they need, but kind of avoid some of those areas that may cause problems. Now, were you able to actually, were these rules actually part of the information that you were able to look at or simply implied from the type of information it was collecting? So through our malware analysis, we can actually kind of see what looks like a framework. So Mm -hmm. we can kind of see the parameters and they Mm -hmm. would say, hey, we have all these rules. You need to specify these internal, you can specify internal IP Mm -hmm. address, internal source port, Mm -hmm. destination IP address, destination port, um, URL, things like that. Um, So again, we can kind of see what they kind of, we, we can see the framework of it. Uh, we were able to recover a partial DNS hijacking list from 2020, but I don't believe that's the totality of everything. Um, and again, based off what we've seen, we suspect that this actor had the ability to kind of write custom rules even per, per device if they wanted to. This episode of the Security Ledger podcast is sponsored by Reversing Labs. Reversing Labs protects the software development process end-to-end, from open source components to CI/CD workflows to the release pipeline. To learn more... Visit them at reversinglabs.com. So here's the interesting thing. You also did, you, there was some, some research you did just on the sort of command and control, and like you said, you know, some, some artifacts from earlier attacks. 
Some of those seem to be targeting like the Uyghur population, um, which obviously we know is a prime target of, Chi- of the Chinese Communist Party and the, and, and the, um, the government in China. Um, and yet you were seeing attacks in basically middle America. Correct. Um, so what's... <laughs> So that's Please kind of, explain. Like, what's going on? So this is that weird discrepancy that we still, I don't think, fully understand. Yeah. Um, so the sample we actually first found that we were referencing before from Virusol was actually uploaded from Hong Kong. From Hong Kong, yeah. So again, Hong Kong was, again, another hotspot where yeah. there was... But around the time that there were a lot of, right, uh, there crackdown was, on protests and, yeah. yes. There, there was a lot of activity there. Yeah. Um, and then we actually found that that particular uh, file was hosted on what we call, like, a, a staging server. So mm-hmm. this would be a server that's on the internet that hosts your payload samples. Um, and they would actually host the payloads on a specific URL, but if you were to just use something like URL scan and just connect to the IP address, it would display this website that looked like a clone of a Uyghur organization. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, I think that was identified by someone at Hacker News. Um, and it was just really interesting that, again, we're kind of seeing some ties to things like this Uyghur population. We saw some stuff to Hong Kong, but then based off our telemetry, we we're still seeing indicators connect to this from Middle America, from mm-hmm. Canada, from mm-hmm. the United Kingdom, you know, mm-hmm. from Western Europe. So it's just this weird discrepancy of how is it that this thing that kind of looks like it was targeting them is actually, we're seeing telemetry over here. I just, I don't really know what to make of it, but it just seemed, again, kind of odd where, you know, when you think of potentially going after a U.S. company, you don't really think of a weaker base lure. You do not. You do not. You know, obviously you're at Labscom. One of the things you were doing with your presentation is sort of saying, hey, you know, come and, come and help us figure out what's going on here. What are the pieces of the puzzle that are missing that we need to kind of fill in? So the biggest thing to me is that when we analyzed that first stage router agent that we've been talking about, we saw pre-built functions that would allow us to say, hey, you should download this an additional file from a C2 and like write this to desk. And they actually had the second capability where they would download a file from another IP address and then they would actually run it directly in the memory. Mm-hmm. So that kind of leads me to believe that there is additional capabilities out there. Mm-hmm. They're on these router devices that we know aren't routinely monitored. They're even difficult to access for some customers, and we just have no idea what these capabilities are. That's the part that kind of gets me. So you're so. looking for, you know, if somebody's got a sample in one of these files that's turned up in one of their nets, you'd love, you, you want to analyze that. I would love to ha- analyze that. Um, and like I said, that just kind of leads to the issue is that a lot of the stuff um, was written to the temp directory. And mm-hmm. for those of you who are familiar with routers, know that your temp directory gets wiped every time your router is rebooted. Mm-hmm. Um, so again, by doing things like writing to the temp directory, by putting things in memory, I think this was designed for you know long-term access where they're yeah. trying to kind of float underneath the radar. Yeah. Um, so that's what makes this so difficult. And then, You were saying that also when you looked at sort of the, the infrastructure here, the command and control infrastructure, there was just a lot of time spent to make that secure, not easy to figure out what's what's going on or who's behind it. Correct. So once they actually infected the router, um, and we believe that they, you know, said that they wanted to keep access to this router, they would then have that communicate with another compromised router. Right. And anyone who works at networking knows that's what routers are designed to do. So unless you were really looking at this with that like super like laser vision. This is just something people would say, oh, yeah, this is just completely normal traffic. Mm-hmm. But it's not until you actually start looking at some of these secondary routers that you're like, wait a minute, why is there four very different routers and like one in the U.S., one in Canada, and one yes. in America, all talking to this one weird router in Taiwan? Yes. That's when you kind of start to get this anomaly detection, and they're all connecting over the same ports, and right. trains being large amounts of data. They just kind of start to raise that suspicion. 
And the secondary thing I think I had on my talk was they're actually rotating those as well. Right. So it's not enough to just have this complicated, you know, command and control structure where you have a router talking to another router. They're then rotating those routers, uh, which to me shows that whoever is behind this has a high level of sophistication. They're trying very hard to keep this thing hidden and that they're probably very well resourced. And that they're aware of, you know, the challenges of doing investigations, you know, getting subpoenas, collecting information, that that may be part of it as well. Obviously getting that, having the, doing that within the United States is a lot easier than trying to do it transnationally. Correct. Right. And that's the other thing is if you were connecting to someone else's router, how do you serve a warrant to Bob's Bass Shop or whatever. Or again, huh. these are hitting these small routers. They're yeah. not going after. If yeah. they're not going after Google or Azure, that you know maybe has a department that does this. Right. They're going after. Was there any pattern in the incidents that you saw within the United States in terms of geography that would give you any, any indication that these were targeted attacks looking at certain individuals or employees of a certain local firm or oper organization, anything like that? So that's a great question, and the problem is. It's a very difficult one, and we don't have a great answer. So again, the problem is that you know I go home to visit my mom every now and then. My brother has a different job, but we both are staying at the same kitchen table. So is that IP address now associated with Lumen? Is it associated with his shop? Is it associated with my mom's shop? Yeah. It's just very difficult to kind of get that level of granularity to say that they're going after this thing without being able to recover things like yeah. the DNS hijacking rules or the HTTP hijacking rules. Okay, and the, and the final question is, which is something we talked about at dinner last night, this raises really important and troubling questions about how to, first of all, pursue incidents like this and also for would-be targets. Um, so if you're uh, working for a high-value organization, right, you've got a you know, Verizon router at, at home or Comcast router at home, what options do you have to assess um, compromises that might have happened on your home router and the security of that device? <laughs> So that's another uh, interesting and tricky subject. Um, so again, I, I jumped down this rabbit hole as well, where yeah. um, I have Verizon at my house. And yeah. of course, once I started doing this investigation, my first thought was, I wonder what's in my temp directory. Um, so I tried to um, read through the entire manual, that 60-page manual they send you that yeah. everyone throws out. Yeah. Um, I tried going through the web GUI, um, and I was just trying to see how is it that I, as a customer who you know purchased this device, would be able to try to you know even look for these sorts of things. And nowadays, a lot of these routers they're just disabling SSH by default as a security measure. But obviously, it's still not keeping you know these high advanced threat actors out, but it's keeping the actual customers out. So you're connecting to the router, but the thing is, they just kind of put what I'm calling the frequent flyer questions or the frequent yeah. questions of, can yeah. I change my DNS server? Yeah, yeah. Can I change my NTP server? Right. But there was no option to LS attempt directory there. Right. There was no option to see running processes, to, right. see, to look at the memory stuff, because again, that's not what their average user was asking for. Yes. But at the same point in time, it's... You know, if this is something that's now going to be part of the environment, there needs to be a mechanism for people to check. Even if they want to build some fault access, you have to be an internal IP address. You have to be hardwired in. You know, we can kind of building something to make this, you know, safer. 
but there just has to be a mechanism. Is it the ISPs who should be on this and monitoring this, or...? So this is that fun game where yeah. I'm sure if you ask the ISPs, they're going to say, well, we're just working with the router vendors. And the router vendors yeah. are like, well, yeah. we're working on the specs that the ISPs gave yeah. us. And right. they're then going to say, well, it's really on the customer to be doing this. And it's that fun game where right. everyone points at someone else and we're stuck in this weird Mexican yeah. standoff. Obviously, the stakes are really high, right? Our guard is down on our home networks. And yet, um, you know, if we're remote connecting into a secure environment, as we saw with Colonial and, you know, whatever else, there can be really big consequences for that. So if our listeners uh, want to be part of the uh, sleuthing project of this, uh, what can they do? The first thing I would do is I would encourage you to just kind of read the blog post and see what it is that we've yeah. already been able to compile. Um, that's found on blog.lumen.com. Um, and if you just search for Zulrat or Blackwell Labs, you'll be able to find it pretty easily. Um, if you have tips, we have um, a Twitter handle. It's at Blackwell Labs. Um, please feel free to reach out to us. I'll if include it in the post. Yes. Yep. And uh, if you guys are at this conference or other conferences, we try to kind of make our way out there. So feel free to stop by, say hi, introduce yourself. and. Great. We'll try to bring around stickers for everyone. Hey, Danny, it's been great. Thank you so much. Great job in the presentation. All right. Thank you. All right. Danny Anamitis is a security researcher at Lumen's Black Lotus Labs. I was interviewing him at the recent LabsCon conference in Phoenix, Arizona. This episode of the Security Ledger podcast is sponsored by Reversing Labs. Reversing Labs protects the software development process end-to-end, from open source components to CI-CD workflows to the release pipeline. With Reversing Labs, development and AppSec teams can set risk-based policies across CICD controls to detect signs of tampering, exposed secrets, certificate misconfigurations, or vulnerabilities before software is released. To learn more, visit them at reversinglabs.com. (laughs) 